Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're going to talk about the Kingdom of God. And that's a big topic, because there's so much in the Kingdom of God. The Kingdom of God is not necessarily the universe itself. The universe is ruled by God. God has set it into motion. Whatever God is, you want to define it down into, you know, some people call him Allah, some people call him Yahweh, Yadavai. And they have all kinds of different names. And then they have all kinds of different images of God, uh, both the carved images out of wood and stone, but also uh, images of God carved in their own minds. And, of course, when they talk about graven images, they're talking about images that you make up out of your personal tree of knowledge as to what you think God is. And... We're just not smart enough to know what God is, but we can define them down into general principles. You know, God is truth. God is reality. God is uh, the creator. So we're defining them with these little terms, but we're not limiting them because our terms are not infinite. They don't. They don't cover every aspect of whatever God is, whatever this concept of God is. But people are always trying to put God into a, you know, into a box or into a bottle like a genie where they, they fit him into an image that they create in their own mind. And whatever God is, God's probably more than that because we're pretty finite creatures. We just cannot grasp whatever God is all all the way. But the kingdom of God is the right to be ruled by God. Because when God set the universe into motion, he gave free will. Now, there's actually whole religious doctrines that people have created and, and a mishmash of doctrines, you know, like we don't really have any free will, we, that we're somehow just a bunch of sock puppets that uh, God created. And we have, you know, we're predestined. You know, they, they take this predestiny phrase that you find in the Bible and uh, they... They create a whole doctrine in their minds that we don't have any choice. And I thought, what a what a simplistic way to take yourself off the hook. It's not your fault. You're predestined. You don't have any control. Oh, we have no. But that's not really the message you see throughout the Bible. So you, in order to hold on to that doctrine. And you find it amongst people who call themselves Calvinists. You find it amongst people who won't call themselves Calvinists. Is that you're predestined. You don't have any control. You don't really make any choices. That God has already chosen and you're predestined. And, uh, you know, that they, the reason that doctrine, there's a couple of reasons why that doctrine is attractive to people, but it really often comes down to the fact that it's, it's letting them off the hook. You know, they're, they're not making choices. They're predestined. They're, they're not ha- having any kind of a choice at all. And then there are the people who, you know, you go to the other extreme. There is no God. Uh, that everything is choice and, uh, 
you know, I'm, I'm not controlled by anything and, uh, you know, I'm just me. But then they let themselves off the hook. Eventually they want to let themselves off the hook, uh, of being responsible for who they are because they're just, you know, product of, uh, coincidences in chemistry. <laughs> you know, they, they've just evolved uh, you know, like amoeba, amoebas out of the primal slime and they're just complex creatures. And, uh, but they, they're, they're just the result of, uh, environment and, and heredity and all these things that have gone on before and we've created ourselves out of nothing. And it's just, uh, all a system, a system of random, uh, events. And so, in in a sense, they have no choice either. They're just they're just a victim of circumstance, uh, circumstances of the natural forces of creation that are just operating in the universe. That really doesn't hold much water either. But that's a very popular with a lot of people who want to call themselves uh, atheists, non-believers in God. When you actually go back in history and start looking at mankind. You know, I just was talking to somebody the other day. I really don't think there's much difference between prehistoric man and man today. Uh, we are we are fairly the same in the essence of our creation. Now, now obviously the the environment of our society and the things that are going on is altering men to some degree. But the basic foundational concept of mankind really hasn't changed that much over the you know, last 5,000 years or 6,000 years of, you know, you know, when I talk about prehistory or prehistoric, uh, prehistoric where? Because there's large areas of the world where we have very little knowledge of the history there. And it might, our history might go back only 100 or 200 years, maybe a 1,000 years at the most. And so everything in that area before what we know about that area is prehistoric in that area. So we had prehistoric areas of the earth and cultures, you know, that go back just a few thousand years. So prehistoric is just, you know, in the last anywhere between two to five thousand, six thousand years. The fact that you know a little bit about Roman history, and there are people who actually challenge that, that we don't know anything about Roman history, that all that we know about history is just made up. I mean, there's no end to the delusion that people can fabricate for themselves once they start creating an image of, uh, the bold image of God or the world or history or science. But the reality is, is, you know, you can imagine you're flying after you're jumping off a building, but eventually the sidewalk may wake you up to reality. And so... You know, what we want to engage in is the truth. We want to face reality. We want to face the truth and uh, not be carried away by our delusion or by anybody else's delusion. So when I talk to you on these shows every week, I'm trying to share with you what I perceive. And I'm out in the desert most of the time. I deal with uh, lots and lots of people from lots and lots of places around the world. I get calls from all over, and people want to tell me their image of the truth, their the, the imagined.
perception of reality. And of course you can say, my perception of reality is also imagined by me. And maybe it is. And that's constantly the challenge. What am I seeing that is real? And what am I seeing that is just imaginary? You know, it's I'm just filling in the blanks. You know, it's like you... Everybody has a certain amount of peripheral vision, just about everybody. There are some people who have lost peripheral vision. But supposedly, out there, if you run your finger out to the right of your eye and you're looking at it, there's a blind spot out there. And then it becomes visible again as you get a little bit farther out. Because there's a little area of your eye that you don't actually see with. And so it's over there on the side, and when you're driving, that could be very dangerous because you don't actually see what's there. Uh, but your brain is filling in that gap based on what, you know, it just saw as you were turning your head or you know, you're flicking your eye around. It fills in that gap, so you don't really look out and see that blind spot. And we do that with our imagination about the reality around us and what we smell, taste, feel, uh, or see. Uh, we, there's a lot of blank spots. There's a lot of things we don't see. There's a lot of things we don't, uh, sense or feel. And so we fill in those blank spots. And so when we look out in the world, we see you know, you can go into a room, you say, well, there's a chair there, and there's a couch there, and there's a table there. You kind of orient yourself, and then you close your eyes, and you try to walk through the room without hitting the table, the chair, and the, the couch, and, and follow this path, uh, this maze through the furniture in a room. Uh, but you're basing your your journey through that room on your memory of what you perceived was there. You're no longer receiving that information as to where everything is at. Recalling that picture, you navigate through the room. Well, that ability to draw that picture of what is in a given place at a given time, in a given moment, in relationship to you, that is really what imagination is. It is the ability to create a virtual reality in your mind based on the information that has come to you when you first walked into the room and looked and saw where everything is. Is that, you know, a blind person, uh, you know, you don't move the furniture around in a blind person's apartment. He's memorized where everything is at. He's gone around and through the senses that he does have because he doesn't see and he's felt, well, here's a chair and over here's a table and he memorizes where these things are. He no longer sees them, but he walks around in the room. And some blind people can actually navigate with sound. As they move around, they can they can hear uh, sounds changing, and they know uh, they've come into another room, or they they've uh, you know they're closer to the wall uh, because the sound changes as you're, you get closer to the wall. And they actually have uh, deals now where they they can have a little earphone in the ear of a, a blind person and uh, it he has a little thing on his front of his clothes that is sending out a signal and it bounces the sound bounces back and it's just a little ticking noise and uh, he can tell when he's coming to an object or when he's facing you know a wall or whatever or there's somebody in front of him because of the way in which the sound changes now it's it's a little tricky to use, but some people have gotten pretty good at using it. 
But again, he's using other senses that he didn't have. You know, he doesn't have sight. So he uses other senses. Uh, the white cane. Now that's using the sense of feel, because he touches, but it's also using that tapping noise that that cane makes. You know, because he can tell, you know, is he walking on cement? Is he walking on grass? Is he going to be going on, you know, clay? Uh, like he's going off the road or whatever. And there, he feels objects out in front of him. And so that, that's telling him how he's navigating because he's using the, the sense of feel and sound in order to navigate with the use of the white cane. So anyway, why all that analogy is, is because you look out in the world, you're using your sight, uh, your ability to hear, your ability to feel, touch, smell, and you are getting information about the world, about history, about relationships with other people. Uh, you know, you're, you're reading their face, their, their expressions, uh, when you talk with them, when you come around them, and it's, it's telling you all kinds of stuff because you're reading not just what they say, but the way in which they, their demeanor and how they act, and that's telling you about that person. All this information coming in is forming an image of that person in your mind. What they look like. And, uh, and people aren't always, people are sometimes very good at hiding the truth about what they really feel. Who they really are. I mean, that's why there's a billion dollar makeup business, uh, industry in the world today is because people are disguising who they are with makeup. You know, they're making themselves look different. You know, they put on clothes, suits, uh, they comb their hair, they put on, uh, uh, eyeshadow if, uh, hopefully if we're talking about a woman or, or lipstick, although why, why should I make such a sexist statement? It doesn't have to be a woman, but, uh, the reality is that people are creating an image of themselves that they look a certain way. And that's to present themselves differently than they are without all that stuff that they're adding in. And it's to help create an image in your mind as to who they are. And uh, what they say, the way they say it. I mean, this is what politicians do all the time. They, they, they're projecting an image, trying to convince people, vote for me. And so that image that you see may not be real. You know, and I always remember growing up that I saw uh, John F. Kennedy running for office and as president and everything. And you wouldn't have known that he was a chain smoker of cigars. He he would light the next cigar with the last cigar. He was constantly smoking cigars. Well, I never saw him with a cigar. How could a man who's out in the public has camera people going around him all the time... And uh, you don't even see it burning on his desk. You know, you don't see some cigar smoke in the room. It's because for some reason the media just was treating him uh, kindly. They they liked that. Uh, it was popular in the media to do so. So the, when he was puffing on a cigar, they never took pictures. They just didn't do it. Uh, they they when they were going to take pictures, they they would remove the cigar from the picture. So that you wouldn't see. They didn't Photoshop it out. They just took the time because they were a part of that image making. And they just chose to do that because he was popular with the press. And so the, you know, it's, it's a little dishonest, 
but uh, they, you know, it didn't seem it was important, so they did it. But in reality, is is you know, uh, it's changing. They're, they're fiddling with the image of John F. Kennedy, and it was the Kennedy Nixon election where people realized how powerful TV was. The images that you presented on TV uh, was powerful. And that's partly why the media treated him so well as he was, he was good on TV. He was good on that. Uh, and so that, that's what they were trying to make their news reports look good. And he looked good. So they did lots of news reports about him and they, they airbrushed a reality around, uh, Kennedy that just didn't exist. Not, Nothing to do with his politics, just to the image in your mind, because the image in your mind is going to either make you feel comfortable about Kennedy or not. And if you feel comfortable about him, you're likely to vote for him, because the American voter doesn't really sit and pour over the policies and record of the individuals uh, to try to figure out who is really best equipped. They go by feeling. They go by, and this is how they pick their churches. They go by feeling. Did I feel good at that church? And to some degree, that feeling can be good, but what is controlling that feeling? What are the influences of that feeling? Go back to, you know, women wearing makeup and certain kind of clothing and and uh, hairstyles and everything to, to look uh, attractive, to look pleasing, to give you a feeling of comfort. And that creates popularity for them in your mind, in your attitude, in the way you treat them. Well, God's not going around putting on makeup. He's not trying to create an image of himself. God is who he is. I am what I am. And But our perception of God is not usually based on sight and sound because we don't actually see him or hear him. And, you know, we don't hear his voice coming to us. But the reality is we do see and hear him in his creation and what he has created. If if God is the creator, if he is whatever, whatever thing put creation into motion, if that's him, then we can get a little bit of understanding of him by looking at nature. If we, as individuals, which the Bible says are created in his image, then looking at us can give us some insight into who God is and, and, and what God is. It's not going to give us a clearer picture because it's too big a picture for us to take in. But it will give us some sort of idea. And Jesus talks about that, you know, how come you can't, you can read the signs in the sky, but you can't read the signs of the times. And, uh, and if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But then there were a lot of people that saw Jesus physically, but did not understand Jesus because they didn't really see Jesus. They saw an image of Jesus. They were literally projecting. And people do this about people you know, people you meet. You project into that person an identity Based on what your eyes see. 
You know, like you see a, a, a nice girl who, and I'm, I'm speaking about this from the point of view of a man, she seems nice, uh, she seems clean, she she seems neat in, in her, uh, the way she presents herself, she has good manners. You think she's a nice girl because of all these things that you see. But you don't really see her heart. She could be a, a, a sneaky, wicked, conniving uh, individual. Who's plotting your very death. You don't know. I mean, she's probably not, but, or plotting somebody's death. Uh, because you, you have a limited view of her. You have, you know, you look for these things when you look at her, but you can't see into her soul. Now they say the eyes are the window of the soul, but I don't know if people can really see into the eyes of the individual. And, and you go out and meet lots of people. I meet lots of people all the time. Um, and you know, over my life, I've met lots and lots of people. And so you get a certain feel for people, not just based on sight and sound and, and touch and, and interaction, but there's something else. There are other things you see with, you know, the spirit, can you see with spiritual eyes into the heart and mind and soul of other people? You know, the evil, the Satan, all these other, uh, you know, the devil, all these other things that we create, uh, you know, or we draw from the text of the scriptures, uh, whatever they are, they are almost always equated with the idea of deception. They can appear as an angel of light. They can appear as good things. And of course we see politicians out often trying to appear as one thing and then we find out some scandalous story that they're actually something else completely different. That they're, you know, that they're, you know, they're, they're out there fighting for women's rights and they actually beat their wife and cheat on their wife and, and you, and, or maybe the, you know, you have a priest and that's recently in the news where priests are, you know, so holy and uh, servants of God and, and uh, servants of the people and uh, you know they've dedicated their life to God and then you find out that they have you know a uh, child abuse slave uh relationship with hundreds maybe even thousands of people and cover-ups and and uh, horrible horrible abuses but everybody thought they were such great guys i mean you had uh, John Wayne Casey or Gacy um was found with what twenty three bodies of children buried underneath his house, and everybody thought he was such a great kid. He would play clowns at parties, and he would go out and do charitable work, and you know, meet with the the uh, president's wife, and uh, she thought he was a wonderful guy, and all this stuff. And he was heinously murdering people, uh, children. Capturing them, torturing them, and then after they were dead, he buried them underneath his house. And those are just the ones that he buried under the house. Uh, there's a belief that there were many, many more that he dumped into rivers and, you know, out into landfills and everything. And, and, uh, he was just a, the most heinous of, uh, murderers. But people saw him every day and they thought he was a great guy. They had no idea who they were looking at. Uh, yet there he was. So, are we deceived about people, about religion, about the Holy Scriptures, about life in general? Uh, we certainly can be. 
So how do we know when we're not being deceived? That's the big question. We'll talk about that when we come back to Keys of the Kingdom. So we were talking about deception, seeing things as they really are. Seeing, uh, so what is the one thing we should start on taking a look at that uh, we might have a ghost of a chance of seeing clearly, seeing without deception? And I think in itself, that one thing is not enough. That you have to go out in the world and challenge your vision of what you're looking at. But the one thing that you can look at probably closer than anything else is you. You know, you you look out at other people and you kind of judge their motivations. Or what what are they really up to? Uh, are, are they a... Uh, a cigar-smoking, manipulative, womanizing politician? <laughs> or are they really a great guy? <laughs> so you, you you look at what you can see and try to figure that out. Uh, but you can't see everything. You can't be with them all the time. I was just talking to people uh, about homeschooling. They come from a country where homeschooling is illegal if you... If you don't homeschool, if you try to homeschool your children, you will go to jail. Uh, in the same country, if you don't get the, the, so, the, you know, the people's social number, whatever it is, social security number in that country, if you don't get one for your child, you will be arrested. It's a criminal offense to not get your children numbered. Uh, so, you know, they have different perspective on things. Uh, they, they come from another reality. Their country is different than our country. So when you go out and you see how other people are dealing with the things of life in, in these other countries, you can make a contrast with your own. And you may say, well, we're a freer country because we don't do this, 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 and this. But when you're looking at yourself, how closely are you really looking at yourself? How honest are you and you really look at yourself? And of course, if we go back to the scriptures and we look at the scriptures, the dishonesty, when we look at ourselves, what we do, what we think, the way we think, the dishonesty of our perception of us as an individual is where all the trouble started. You know, Adam was given a whole universe of, you know, a world, a garden uh, to live in. He had dominion over all kinds of things. And he, but he was restricted. There was some instruction. You know, one of my trick questions is, what was the first commandment of God? And people, you know, I am the Lord thy God, you know, that I... But the actual first commandment that we have from God is dress it and keep it. You know, here's the garden. Here's the planet. Dress it and keep it. Take care of it and keep it so that you keep your dominion. Don't give your dominion away to somebody else to make the, this responsibility that I give you uh, null and void. I am giving you something that you are to be responsible. That's a job. Dress it and keep it. And so that's the first commandment of God. Then he said, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
but eat of the tree of life. So there are at least two trees. I assume there's lots of other trees, but those two trees, which are actually metaphors representing uh, something, you know, I can go into that, we have, but uh, just for the this conversation, those two trees, one is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the other one is the tree of life. You're not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You're to eat of the tree of life. And of course, you know, one of the ways to perceive the knowledge of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is your brain. Your, your conscious brain, the, the mechanical brain that, you know, draws that picture of the room with your eyes and then with that imaginary picture in your head, you can close your eyes and navigate around the room. You're doing that with your brain. Yeah, what you remember, what you're taught in school, you, you memorize it, and you remember, oh, this, this in history, and this in chemistry, and this in, in, uh, trigonometry. And with that information you memorize, you can use that information as a tool to go out and solve problems. But that's your brain doing that. That's the tree of knowledge. And it's there. You can use it, but not as a source, not to eat, not to uh, guide you. Uh, you need something else, this tree of life. And so what's the tree of life? Uh, life is, uh, the, the word we see there for life is uh, the, the same word for breath. It's, it's your, it's almost, you know, if you're breathing, you're conscious. When you stop breathing, you're going to be unconscious. So breath and consciousness are, are, connected but you have this tree of life that you're supposed to eat from so your consciousness is not supposed to be entirely dependent upon knowledge information your senses it's supposed to be also tapping into this tree of life this tree of consciousness this tree of awareness this tree that cometh of god and and that is also a source uh, of information because it helps you decipher the information. When you receive information, you can say, well, this is valuable to know. You can say, this is not valuable to know. And so you categorize your information and you're giving, you're empowering information. This is really important. This is not really important. And this is what we see today on the, on the social Media networks, when they talk about politics, you have, you know, if uh, to some people, if Trump says it or it comes out of the or they think Trump says it, it's bad. You know, and there's been all kinds of guys that go out and talk to people on the street and they say, well, what do you think of Trump's policy? And then they tell them and they're actually naming off Obama's policies. They're not naming off Trump's policies. And they think, oh, that's terrible, that's terrible, that's terrible. Then they can go out to the same kind of people and they can say, well, what do you think of Obama's policy? And they're actually telling them Trump's policies or what he says. And they say, well, I think that makes sense and that's really good. And uh, because they've already decided that they're comfortable with Obama, this is back in the election, and they're not comfortable with Trump. Well, they decided they're not comfortable with Trump based on 
what they've received, the information they've received about Trump, what they saw, what they hear, or what they were told about Trump, which is usually the case. You know, and I talking to people who are looking at European media all the time, they they have an impression of Trump based on what they are getting in the news. They never see him, they never walk with him, they never talk with him. I actually have a, a neighbor who's uh uh, has relatives that have been working for uh, Trump in his private capacity in his home for years. And they think he's great. They think he's the most polite guy, most considerate employer. You know, they just have nothing but praise for him. Of course, they're looking at him from the point of the fact that I want this job, but they seem that the picture that you get from what they say about him and what CNN says about him they're completely different images. <laughs> They're d- completely different. And I'm not defending or, or, you know, I don't want to be defending the President of the United States. I'm just using that as an example so that you can take a look. I'm sure we, we could talk about your family and find people that have an image in your family based on somebody in your family who doesn't like them. And then you may have an image in your family of somebody who thinks he was really great because he's always been fair with them. And, but I don't know your family. This is somebody who's out there in the public eye and a lot of people see him and, and, and see things about him. But the reality is, is that we draw this image based on the information or whether the information is true or not. And we accept the information because we put value on it as it comes in. If you trust everything that CNN says, then what CNN says is the truth. And then you you create your image based on that. If you trust what Fox News says, then your image of the truth that you create in your mind will be based on Fox News. And you will have whole sections of the population, one following CNN, I'm just using them as an example, and the other one following Fox. Because they've already decided they have a uh, preconceived notion that they're getting the truth from this news source and not getting it from that so source so they're at the outcome of their of the facts that they receive or the, what is posing as facts that they receive will be based on their preconceived notion they will have predestined their determination as to what is true and what is false and what is good and what is evil and so if they've accepted this source of knowledge, this tree of the media, this, you know, whether it's CNN or ABC or NBC, or they've accepted Fox or, or NPR or whatever, whatever these they're accepting as a source of information, that will determine, predetermine the outcome of their perception of reality, the image of reality that they create in their own mind. So anyway, let's go back to that one thing that you can take a look at without looking at it uh, through the eyes of the media uh, is you can look at you. You can look at your own deal. And when Adam was in the garden, he said uh, that you know, when he was confronted with the fact that he had eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil tried to decide for himself what was right, what was wrong, what was true, what was false. He just started putting value on information as if 
this was more valuable or that was more value as a personal choice based on his intellect. That was eating of the tree of knowledge. And that that awakened him to the fact that he doesn't know everything. He's naked. You know, the word naked has to do with authority. Even the, the word serpent is connected with the word naked. And being naked is without dominion. And you have dominion, but you have to eat of the tree of life to have that dominion. You can't just imagine, you know, the old comedy routine where, you know, mind over matter and, and you just have to think through the board. It was Bill Cosby. You think through the board and then you can break the board and you're learning karate. And then he tells, you know, in his comedy routine that suddenly the board was thinking, uh, no, you're not going to break me. And so then he shattered his hand and his arm and all this stuff. It's a funny routine, but the reality is the board doesn't think. <laughs> so, But when you go out there in the world and you deal with other people, you can imagine that somebody loves you or somebody cares about you, but they may not. They, cause they, they may present the idea that they care you, care about you, but they may be trying to take you for everything you've got. They may be trying to con you. And I've seen recently, or fairly recently, somebody who's gotten mixed up with somebody who I know is a natural con. He's just, he's addicted to conning people. And, uh, deception is just a part of his personality. He he doesn't even decide to deceive people anymore because he's so self-deceived. He just walks around in that deception. And that's not that rare. Almost everybody is subject to such a thing uh, to one degree or another. But he he is he's betrayed individual after individual. He betrays himself. And, and he just is walking in case of disaster. And uh, And I hope he overcomes that someday. But he has to take a look at himself to overcome that. If you want your faults, your weaknesses, your, uh, your, uh, uh, your character flaws to go away, you have to look at them. You have to admit them. You have to admit that, that you have a problem. That you have shortcomings. That you have failings. And then you can deal with them and they can actually, you can get better. And you, you don't have to be swept away by these compulsions that are in you. You know, most people, most people who are, uh, you know, uh, I hate to say that, end up thinking that they're homosexual have been traumatized sexually, sometimes by another homosexual or sometimes by just abusive parents or, or, or friends. Uh, that, uh, are not really all that friendly. Maybe they were abused by somebody else, but, I mean, you, you, this is where you see people like Jeffrey Dahmer and John Wayne Casey and stuff like that. If you go back in their life, you find trauma in there. Where they were somehow abused, and then they go back and they abuse others. You know, somebody blows their top at you and gets angry with you, and then you blow your top at somebody else. It's like you have to pass it on. And the reason you have this compulsion to pass on this, you know, uh, trauma to somebody else and traumatize another kid like you were traumatized and you're just drawn to it. You you can't, you, you know, like Jeffrey Dahmer would feel guilty after he killed somebody, but then he would go back and do it again. 
You know, he'd feel bad. He'd feel remorse. But see, feeling remorse and feeling bad is not what will cure you. It's not what will fix the problem. It's about forgiveness. This is why forgiveness is mentioned so much. Because that can break the chains which bind you to return to that action. I'm sure a lot of you, you know, maybe you have, you may have a problem with eating. You you may have a problem with uh, uh, pornography. Yeah, you may have a problem with anger issues where you, you know, you get real angry and even violent. Maybe your wife beat her. Maybe you beat your kids. And then the stories are rampant in our history as mankind of abuse of others. And it's usually because somewhere back we were abused. But it wasn't just, we're not automatically victimized by that abuse. But if we don't forgive and forgive everybody connected with that abuse. You know, if your father beats you and your mother lets him, then you're going to hate your mother. Uh, you'll hate your father, but you also hate your mother because she didn't do anything to protect you. You know, if your wicked stepmother abused you and your father didn't do anything about it, then you'll hate your father. I remember a family back east. Everybody just, they they never understood their father. They they walked on pins and needles around. They thought they respected him. But it was all because they didn't, because the, their their stepmother was abusive. You know, or at least emotionally abusive. And so it, it created a rift between them and their father. They didn't know who their father was. Because they could not forgive their stepmother. So going back to Adam. Adam... Eight of the tree of knowledge tried to evaluate the truth himself to decide what was good and evil, what was right and wrong. This He was not supposed to do this. This opened the eyes to the fact that he is weak and naked and without power to make such decisions himself. He is not God. Uh, and that he should have continued to eat of the tree of life. But he didn't. But he didn't want to admit that he did wrong. So when God confronts him, he says, The woman you gave me, gave me of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to eat. He didn't say, I did wrong. I shouldn't have done that. I betrayed you. I'm sorry. I regret it. Forgive me. I am a, I am a terrible, ungrateful creation. Uh, and I am in need of your mercy and pity and, and and forgiveness. He didn't say that. He says, the woman you gave me tempted me. You know, he didn't take responsibility. And so right there you saw he not only had trauma, he he didn't wasn't willing to admit the truth about himself. So therefore, he couldn't really forgive the person that he needed to forgive because he wouldn't admit that the person that betrayed him was him. <laughs> you know, he wanted to blame it on the woman and blame it on the God who gave him the woman. That's what you do all the time. So, you know, just in the last week, I've seen it time and time again. People try to, they look out in the world and they see their present circumstances and they 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 admit that we don't live in a free country. You know, we're freer than the country that arrests you if you don't get a number for your kids. We're freer than the country that arrests you, uh, 
at least in the sense of uh, ed- home education, if you get arrested, if you try to homeschool your kids, so we're freer in that aspect. In other aspects, we're not freer, probably. But the reality is, is that if you don't want to admit that you're not free, I mean, if if you if you have to work and give up. You know, if you're working for nothing, if you have to work for nothing, you have to labor for nothing. You get nothing back for your labor. You're a slave. A lot of people don't realize that during slavery in America, many slaves were paid. They just weren't paid full amount for their labor. They, and they couldn't necessarily negotiate what they were paid. They were forced to work and they did not receive pay. They received, you know, uh, room and board, lodging. Uh, they they re- received medical care. I mean, no, nobody who had a slave wanted to see the slave die unless he was just foolish because that slave was of value to him. And they wanted to keep the slave a happy worker as a better worker. So they, and a lot of the slaves wouldn't leave when people came and set them free. Because they liked their lot. They were well taken care of. They were well fed. They they had a decent housing. They weren't beat. Uh, they were, you know, most slaves weren't on these big laborious plantations. They lived with the family, ate with the family. Uh, when they got sick, the family brought them broth. Uh, they were a part of the family. That's what most slavery was. Uh, but it still was slavery. They wouldn't, they, they didn't own their labor entirely. They were compensated, but maybe they weren't compensated entirely because they did not own their labor. Their labor belonged to somebody else. If you have to work and part of your paycheck is gone when they give you your paycheck, somebody has taken it out before you get your paycheck, then you're a slave. For at least part of the day, you're a slave. And so, since that's the case in almost every country in the world, that if you have a number in that country, I mentioned Santo Domingo as an example, they have a Seshla number, that's what they call it, Seshla. Uh, if you have that number, a portion of your wages is taken out and goes to the government. If you don't have a Seshla number and you're working for somebody, you get to keep all of your wages. You might not be paid as much because you don't have any protections of the government, but you get to keep it all. They, there's no way to take it out because they, if they take money out of your wages, uh, at least to send to the government, they have to have a number attached to you, and that's the Cessula number. So, But generally speaking, most everybody in Santo Domingo has a Cessula. And that's also how you get into schools. That's how you get benefits from the government. But you're, you have to work without labor because you're a slave. You're not, you're in a system of servitude where you have to work without labor. When you were in bondage in Egypt, 20% of your labor belonged to the Pharaoh. So you had to work for the Pharaoh 20% of the time. And so, if you work today for McDonald's or for Rocketdyne or any major corporation or any company or small company, a portion of your labor goes out. You're a slave. For that time, you're working for nothing. It goes to the government. 
Now, people don't like to talk about that, but that's just the case. I'm not saying anything bad or good about it. It's just the way it is. We're dealing with the reality. You want to know reality or not, you have to see that. Well, there's a lot more to reality than that that makes you a slave. Because if you don't forgive others, you can be a slave to the emotions that have been planted in you by your trauma with others. And you will find yourself doing the same thing to other people that was done to you. And if you find yourself doing that, it's because you haven't forgiven somebody. So you remain attached to the spirit that they put into you when they traumatized you. And you will repeat that. So again, if Adam were to admit, this is why Jesus says, you know, here's the publican, tax collector. His prayer is, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. He's admitting his fault. He's admitting his error. And Jesus says he's going to enter the kingdom sooner than the Pharisee who is saying, I've done these good things. So now we have, we have one of the philosophies or theologies or images of God we have now going around as a doctrine of Jesus Christ is that you are not saved by works. Which is absolutely true. You're never saved by works. But works are evidence of what's going on. If if you're like Jeffrey Dahmer going out and killing people, or if you're just losing your temper with your children, or you're abusing your wife, or instead of talking with her, you're calling her names, you know, uh, and yelling and screaming at her, or vice versa. She's yelling and screaming at you. You're not, you're, somewhere you're not dealing with reality. The reality of you. You're not, you're not, you're unable to forgive people. You're unable to forgive yourself if you're not willing to look at yourself. If you're not willing to look at yourself, you're not going to be able to see the world as it really is. Because it really wasn't so much that, uh, Adam's eyes were opened. Because it was about a certain eye within, uh, 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 you know, E, I in Adam was closed. His physical eyes were open to something. His emotional eyes were open to something. His egotistical eyes were open to something. But his spiritual eye to the tree of life was closed. He lost access to the tree of life. And the tree of life is going to help you see reality as it really is. You're not going to be judging what is good and evil. You're going to know what is good and evil. That's why Jesus talks about let him who has eyes to see, see, and him who has ears, hear. Well, how do you get those eyes that see and those ears that hear? So the image of reality that you draw in your mind is reality. Because if you don't see clearly, you're not going to see reality clearly. You're not going to see the truth. You're not going to know the truth when you see it. Because you don't have eyes to see. When Adam's eyes were open to his egotistical vanity, that he thought he could decide good and evil, his eyes were, his spiritual eyes were closed. He could no longer eat of the tree of life. So he wouldn't know God's opinion. 
That's what the tree of life is. It's the breath of God. It's the opinion of God. It's the understanding of God, which is true understanding. I have an opinion. You have an opinion. We talked about this a week or so ago. But God's opinion, by the definition of who God is, is reality. If you want to see reality, if you want to see the truth, if you want to know what's really going on, then you have to eat of the tree of life. If you want to eat of the tree of life, you have to stop eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Stop eating of the tree of vanity that you can figure it out. And and some of the evidence that you're not eating of the tree of life and are still eating of the tree of knowledge is that you think you're a slave today because of fraud. You think you're a slave today because someone usurped your rights. You think that you're a... I mean, one of the evidence also of the fact that you're you're not eating of the tree of life and that you're still blind, you don't have eyes to see, is that you think you're actually free. But those of you who are waking up and realizing, wait a minute, I'm not actually free. Uh, what, what The labor I produce is not mine. The children I produce, somebody else tells me how to raise them and how to teach them and what what I can do and what I can't do. Yeah, it might be better in some countries, that arrest you if you try to homeschool your kids. But uh, the fact is, is your your kids are not your kids. They're children of the state. This is why Jesus has called no man father upon the earth. Because at the time, Rome, the emperor, was becoming the father of the people. They were children of Rome. When the Pharisees said, we had no king but Caesar... They became children of Rome, not children of Yahweh. Oh, they still use the word Yahweh, but they weren't. We just had the festival here this week, uh, the Burning Bush Festival. And we, we, we didn't try to make it a big deal. We were still working out some kinks, and, uh, but we had some really great, 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 great people here. And we had some interaction, and we talked about that. You can listen to some of the uh, audios that we've released on that already, and we have some more coming out. We had somebody there who said, well, this can't be the Feast of Tabernacles. And, of course, we didn't call it the Feast of Tabernacles. We didn't say it was. But it, but we also explained what the Feast of Tabernacles is really all about. I know lots of people have the Feast of Tabernacles. Or they try to. They try to do, you know, they read the Bible and they, you know, they'll they'll do certain things that were done at the Feast of Tabernacles and they'll be intense and all this stuff. And they say, oh, how do, when do we have it? And we, we count the moons and all this stuff. I mean, if everybody in Alaska was having the Feast of Tabernacles, they, they might find that difficult because they could be having, you know, snowstorms in the middle of the tabernacles <laughs> if they go by the moons because weather is different there than it is in Israel. It isn't the moons that makes it the Feast of Tabernacles. It's the function that makes it the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, it's not the labels. It's not the words. It's not the costume that you wear. It's the precepts and principles. But if you unmoor uh, the, the pre- precepts and principles that they're trying to express in these words, then uh, you're going to miss the whole point. And that's what people do. 
they they get the the costume, they get the uh you know, you get their moons lined up and uh, uh they they try to do it but they miss because they're eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They don't understand the spirit. What what were they trying to accomplish by this? What was the function? What was the actual purpose of it? Well, let's go to everything. Go to church every week. Uh, go out and make disciples of men. That's one of the things we'll probably talk about in the next hour is what, what does it mean to be a disciple of men? And, uh, uh, I think we're sliding right into the next hour because I didn't hear a break at the first hour. So we, is that correct, Paul? Yeah. Okay, no station break. So we're we're in the second hour. <laughs> but anyway, during this hour, we'll talk a little bit about disciples. So let's go back. Sum up is that you need to see yourself before you can see God. But you can't see yourself without God. Because God is the only one who really knows you completely. So it's a combination. It's like left foot, right foot. In order to get anywhere, you have to have... Each one. So it's a step-by-step process. You have to take a look at yourself, then take a look at the world that God has created and your relationship with the world. Because you're not going to see God directly, but you can see the world that he creates. You also get to see the world that you create because you're made in the image of God. So what kind of children are you producing? What kind of friends are you gathering around you? What kind of... uh, uh government have you created? Have you created a government like the government of God? Uh, are you coveting your neighbor's goods in order to get benefits from the government? You send the government out to your neighbor to force your neighbor to contribute to your welfare. You want free education. You want free health care. You, 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 you want, you want, you want, you want, you want all these things. And so you look to the government to provide them, and the government only provides them by taking away from your neighbor, or even taking away from the future of your neighbor, so they're taking away from your neighbor's children, and therefore you're putting your neighbor into bondage to you, so that you can have more stuff, so that you can be more comfortable. You are not doing what God wants you to do. You're doing contrary to the will of God. And therefore, you will go into bondage. Has nothing to do with fraud. Has uh, There may be some fraud out there, but that's not the moving force in our present state of the world. It's covetousness. It's sloth. You're not taking back your responsibilities. You're not doing what Jesus said. You're not doing it the way Jesus said to do it. You're not doing it the way Moses said to do it. And this, the more people are emphasizing, you know, where the moon is in preparation for the festival, what outfits you have on, you know, how you set up your tents, or if it's Pentecost, that's another, you have, they have, you know, you know, you have to kill the lamb and put the blood, because Passover to Pentecost, you have to put the blood on and all these things. You're focusing on all that. You're focusing on appearance. You're, you're focusing on an image that you've created, that these, these, uh, metaphors are trying to tell you something, 
And you're focusing on the metaphor rather than the message. And so you're missing the whole thing. So you will remain in bondage. But you will have the delusion of being free and being righteous. See, that's one of the things you're supposed to be doing, seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It is not righteous to covet your neighbor's goods. I mean, I know people who go out and do all, jump through all these hoops that they create in their doctrines out of the scriptures, but they do it by unmooring the metaphor away. And then they, but if they need anything, they go to a system that exercises authority one over the other to get what they need. They go go to a government that is not a free form of government. We'll talk about that, what a free form of government looks like. So, and, and they will say that they're followers of Christ. Is there a difference between a disciple and a follower of Christ? A disciple of Christ and a follower of Christ? A seeker of the kingdom and a disciple and a follower of Christ are these different things? So anyway, a lot of uh, of our delusion and a lot. One of the important things, because of the fact that when we are thinking, most people are thinking in words. They're not thinking in concepts. They attach the concept to the word after the fact. And they do that with education. You know, they, they're educated by public school. They're educated by private school. They're educated by the media. They're educated by, you know, CNN or, or Fox. They have all these different sources, which is all knowledge coming in. And the tree of knowledge is there so that there is knowledge. That's fine. But how do you put value on it? You need to be eating of the tree of life. In order to eat of the tree of life, in order to get back to that garden where we have dominion, and you're eating of the tree of life, you have to see the truth about yourself. The problem is not the woman God gave you. The problem is not the fraud. The problem is not the usurpers. The problem is not Caesar. The problem is you. The problem begins with you. It's going to end with you. And we identify that problem in the scripture as unforgiveness and selfishness. You know, which is why Jesus says to forgive. If you don't forgive, neither will you be forgiven. You will, if you don't set others free, you will not be set free. If you want your freedom to come faster, you have to work at setting others free. You can't be slothful. You can't be slothful in taking care of yourself. So you have to go out and work and you have to be industrious and you, you know, you have to save, you have to sacrifice. Sacrifice is important too. In order to save, in order to take care of yourself. But now you really want to get on the fast track to freedom? Start thinking about taking care of others, setting others free. Okay, so there are people out there who will not eat of the Parthenos. And remember those temples of Rome? One of them was the Parthenos. Uh, you have the, you know, Temple of Saturn and Parthenos and Mineta and all these. And we've talked about the temples. And so if you've been following us, you understand that those temples were all government buildings. Providing government services. Mineta was minting coins. The Temple at Ephesus also minted coins. But that was the World Bank. So that had another set of coins that it was minting. Mineta would be where the, you know, Caesar had his coins minted. 
So they were putting money into circulation. And so anyway, you learn all about that. But what was going on in the Temple of Saturn? That's the, the Bureau of Vital Statistics. It had other deals. The, there was the tabularum too, where they kept records. And then you had Vestal Virgins making sure the records were kept and they couldn't be married because you didn't want somebody messing with those records because your inheritance was going to be tied up in those records. That's why your birth certificates were recorded at the Temple of Saturn. This was business. This was government. That's what these temples were. But the Temple of God, I mean, where did, did the Kingdom of God have birth certificates? Well, you wrote it down your family, but then how would anybody else know? Do I have to go look at your family Bible to know when you were born? Well, no, their knowledge, they didn't build a stone temple. They were the temple. Uh, uh, during the festival, my son gave a little talk about, you know, where I first began to discover that the golden calf, uh, and I was going to work with him and he's reading the, about the Peloponnesian Wars, and I suspected a lot of these things before because I eat of the tree of life, but I didn't have information that I could share with you to show you where you've gone wrong. So anyway, he's reading this and he's, he's, he's discovering things and he's telling me as we're going to work. And, uh, uh, he's pointing out that the uh, golden statue in Athens was re- called the reserve fund. And they actually sawed off chunks of it from time to time to make coins in order to fight wars. Well, another way they had more coins coming into their treasury is they went out and loaned money to other city-states. One of the things they loaned money to other city-states for was to help pay for the building of a wall around those city-states so that they could ward off people when they came to attack and rob and steal and take them away like in Sodom and Gomorrah. So they would go out and loan money to other city-states, and all these city-states would be paying them back plus interest. Well, they went to one city-state, and he named who it was, and uh, that city-state, uh, they pointed out, you have no walls, we can loan you some money to build those walls. And they said, we are our walls. The people were their walls. They were living walls. And of course, we're supposed to be living temples, so we're not supposed to build temples and keep all these records in there. We keep the records, but we put the value on the records because of the fact that we are our brother's keepers. We keep each other. We take care of one another. We don't do it through forced offerings. We do it through free will offerings because the form of government that the kingdom of God is, is a free form of government. If how much you pay into the government and who you pay to the government is not your choice, you are not free. That simple. If you are not making that choice, you are not free. So we're going to end up going full circle all the way back to the beginning when I was originally talking about, so what does that mean, not free? So so if I get into a place where I get to make the choice of what I give into my free form of government or not, then I am free? Not necessarily. But you won't get there until you actually start becoming free. Okay. What am I talking about? Okay, there's two trees again. You got the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's full of your own vanity. You're going to decide for yourself. You're going to take what information you get, what you see with your eyes, what you hear with your ears, what you calculate up in your brain. You're going to make a decision as to what is right and wrong. You're going to be God. 
you're going to decide what your opinion will become the doctrine of the world. (laughs) The problem is the rest of the world has its own doctrine. They may not agree with you. So you'll have to accumulate all kinds of people, millions of people in an army in order to make everybody else agree with you. Because that's the problem with your image of God is that it keeps bumping into all those other images of God out there that are in the minds of everybody else. And uh, so your reality, you're, you're not an infinite creature, so your reality is going to bump into other people's reality. And there will be conflict. But if you... If your reality is dependent upon the reality of God, if you're actually tapped into the understanding of God, then your reality may be in uniformity with the truth. And then when you see the world, you'll see the truth. But again, you can't see the truth about the world until you're willing to see the truth about yourself. Because that's where your blindness came from. That's where Adam's blindness came from. He didn't want to admit that he was eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because of his own desire to be God. To rule. And of course, that that error bloomed in Cain. And he not only desired to rule, he desired to rule over his brother to the point where he was violent against his brother. So this is what everybody out there in the world is doing. They want benefits by force. They want government to provide them with benefits and force their neighbor to contribute to their welfare. You have to stop that. You have to see that's wrong. We have to turn around and try to go another way where we take care of one another, not through force, but through love and charity and sacrifice. That's the message of Christ. You go jump through all the other hoops, go to church, go to a church that has a big screen TV and great sound system. It makes you feel good. It doesn't get you closer to God. It actually keeps you farther away from God. You want to go to God... You have to care about your neighbor as much as you care about yourself. If you look at yourself and you find yourself not caring about your neighbor as much as you care about yourself, that is evidence that what you do because of that imagined belief in your head, what you do is evidence that you don't really love God. Because New Testament tells you in the epistles after the crucifixion that if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you're not keeping his commandments, if you're coveting your neighbor's goods, then you don't really love him. That's okay with me. You have predestined yourself by that choice. See, you don't really choose about everything that you face during the day. Those choices are already made for you because you made some fundamental choices. You chose not to see the truth about yourself. Not to see the fact that you're eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil every day when you go to church and decide what church to go to and decide, you know, that you are righteous. And see, I come along and I say, well, if you're righteous, why are you coveting your neighbor's goods to the agency of the governments that you have created for yourself? And according to the Bible, the scripture that you say you believe in, It's because you've already rejected God. 
you've already turned around and gone away from God, out of the presence of God, and you're trying to decide for yourself. The smarter you are, the richer you are with knowledge. And the richer you are, the harder it is to get into the kingdom of God. You have to set aside your personal genius and admit that you don't know. That you, you don't know what value to put on the information you get. The only way you will really know is to eat of the tree of life. The only way to eat of the tree of life is to get back to the tree of life, to eat of the tree of life. And the only way to do that is to see yourself as you really are. You won't see yourself as you really are until you start forgiving others. Then you can forgive yourself. You have to forgive yourself for sinning against God. And so it, it's all a process. You can't you can't just take one element. But evidence of the fact that you're not eating of the tree of life, and there are still things going on all around you that you can't see. I like I was saying, I, I see people being deceived by other people. I see people being deceived by themselves, and uh, deceived of themselves. So they think they're righteous. They think they're good. They think they're God fearing. And they are actually manipulative con men. And other men get mixed up with them. And they can't see that they're getting mixed up with manipulative con men. Who will take them for everything they have until they are stone broke again. And they don't see that. They don't see that this woman is not doesn't really love them. But loves what they think they can get from you. Manipulate you. Maybe they're not marrying you. They make you think they're marrying you because you're a man. But they're actually marrying you because you're a mouse. And they think they can manipulate you. Now all women will test the metal of a man by their very nature. That's the way God made them. And they should do that. But the good woman is pleased when their husband rises up and becomes a man. Instead of just a male. The bad woman is is upset and disturbed if their husband starts to wake up and starts becoming a man. Oh, they feel attacked and and, and threatened. Now, but we don't have to be name callers or accusers or anything. What we have to do is see ourselves as we really are. We have to go full circle on uh, on this path. So in order to open up those spiritual eyes, in order to even have access to those spiritual eyes, what do you have to do? If you had to make a list, you know, people are going to celebrate tabernacles, they have their list and they go down, we've got to count the moons, we've got to wear the outfit, we've got to have the, uh, you know, uh, the tabernacle area, we've got to set up the tents in a certain way, and they're missing the spiritual messages. They don't get any of the spiritual messages. And after they're done with their festival, they haven't done any of the things that was actually the purpose of the festival to begin with. And this is what we see with the Pharisees. They weren't followers of Moses. They weren't disciples of Moses. They weren't uh, uh, worshiping Yahweh or Yadavah or Jehovah. They were worshiping an image of Jehovah that they created out of unmooring the metaphors from the principles that they were to stand for. So how do you, how do you become that disciple of Moses, that disciple of Christ, that follower of Christ? How do you do that? Well, again, 
forgive others. Forgive yourself. Be like the publican. You're foolish and in need of, uh, of the, of the, uh, grace of God. The forgiveness and mercy of God. You're in need of that because you are ungrateful and unmerciful yourself. So what are we going to see when that's true, that prayer is actually true and not just something that you voiced with your head bowed? It wasn't just something you said. Well, you're going to want to forgive others. You're not going to be blaming your present state of bondage on others. It's not the government's fault. It's not Abraham Lincoln's fault. It's not FDR's fault. It's not Obama's fault. It's not Trump's fault. That's a, that's a big thing. Everybody wants to blame. Not everybody, but all the people that don't like Trump want to blame everything on Trump. And there was a certain amount of that when Obama, if it wasn't for that darn Obama in the White House. Well now it's, it isn't for that, uh, misogynistic, uh, whatever, like white supremacist Trump in the White House, you know, and they, I mean, there's a whole string of expletives that they use in relationship to Trump. You know, I, I saw just a couple minutes of the hearings, uh, for the, the, whoever's going to be the next apotheos of, uh, Washington, the, the next, uh, Supreme Court, uh, god of deciding what is good and evil. Uh, at the hearings, there were people jumping up and screaming. Seventy people were arrested the first day, or something like that. And the, and somebody, one of the Democrats, said, uh, "This is democracy in action." Actually, that's not democracy in action. <laughs> that's just a bunch of rude people interrupting the proceedings. <laughs> uh, democracy isn't about screaming and yelling. It's about vote. But it often. Because you're in a democracy with selfish people, it's about 51% of the people taking away the rights of the other 49. Which is why almost everybody, all the people they call the founding fathers, were in opposition to democracy. They were not for democracy. Because they knew that democracies fail. Plutarch knew it. Polybius knew it. Benjamin Franklin knew it. Adams knew it. And they all said so. Democracies will, you know, people will eventually, once they realize they can vote benefits in for themselves at the expense of their neighbor, their natural selfishness, their unrepentant selfishness would justify doing that. So we need our social security. We need our Medicare. That's what they say. I don't, I don't need it. Uh, they, they need their social security. They need their Medicare. They need their welfare. They need their, they need their temples. To be providing them with the benefits of the of that world by taking away from their neighbor, and in in every country today, they're not just taking away from their neighbor; they're taking away from their neighbor's children, because they're putting their country farther and farther into debt. All this is not followers of Christ. This is all going the opposite way. So you're supposed to be seeking the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is turning around. And going back and laying down your life daily for your fellow man. To become the daily ministration of faith, open charity, and the perfect law of liberty. And the way to do that, and the way Christ commanded to do that, is to sit down in the tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. I mentioned that to somebody. Somebody called me up 2.30 in the morning. They were in jail. They hadn't committed any crime or anything. 
they don't have a driver's license. And they don't have a driver's license because they don't use a social security number. But they weren't driving. They were in a car with somebody else who was driving. And that person was obeying all the laws except for the fact that his stickers had expired four days before. And like often happens, he didn't realize his stickers were expired. I've known people driving around for two years, didn't know their stickers were... There was a young girl who just didn't know. <laughs> it was just kind of... She wasn't blonde, but she d- was acting as if she was blonde. And she never... She didn't know she had to renew her stickers. So she she also hadn't changed her oil on her car. But uh, she just didn't know. And we had to explain, well, no, you, you need to update that or you're going to get pulled over. Well, this guy was four days overdue. They ended up talking to the cop for an hour and they both got arrested. And they were both let go eventually. But early, you know, there evidently one of their phone call was to me. Now, this guy knows he should be in the tens, hundreds of thousands. He should be in a congregation. Then he can call his minister. And then I don't get woke up every night when people get into trouble or they get sick or they have problems or whatever it is. But he tried to excuse that. He says, oh, no, Jesus was just talking about sitting down on the grass at that one particular time. Well, I've written a whole book and he's read it. It looks like we're going to go to break here. Uh... and he's read it that this is the way the entire early church was organized. We know it's the way early Israel was organized. We know it's the way almost every free government was organized. This is in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. But he won't do it. But he wants to call me at 2 o'clock in the morning, 3 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> so, anyway, we'll we'll finish this up when we come back. So, welcome back. So, like I said, I wrote the book, Thy Kingdom Come. It's free online. Uh, it shows you that... Uh, and we have all kinds of articles. Uh, it's the one place where Jesus commanded the people to sit down in the tens, fifties, hundreds of thousands to the tune of 5,000 people. It's what they were doing at Pentecost. It's what they do at Tabernacles is that they sit down in these uh, groups of ten and then they link those groups of ten together. Why are they doing all this is because once you have that network of people then you can begin the process of forgiving other people, sacrificing for the welfare of other people in faith, hope, and charity, actually putting your love for your neighbor into action, not what you say. You know, I love my neighbor, I say, but I don't want to do anything for him. Uh, you know, I love the poor guy who's beat up in the ditch, but I'm not going to stop and help take care of that guy in the ditch, like the Good Samaritan. Christ is pointing to these precepts all the time. But uh, but people aren't doing them. So there's nothing magical about sending down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. But it's an opportunity that you can actually start laying down your life without jumping off a cliff for your fellow man, actually loving your neighbor as yourself, actually moving away from the slothful behavior of not taking care of one another. And we talked about the temples. The Parthenos, the the Temple of Mineta, the Temple of Ephesus. These are all government buildings providing social welfare, providing social welfare for the needy of society through forced offerings. While the, the Christians were forming a living temple through free will offerings in the hopes that others would be there to take care of them. 
So if you're not gathering in small intimate congregations where you can help one another, and then you're not gathering that small congregation with other small congregations, I say small in the sense of, you know, you don't know 500 people in your church. Uh, you may know of them, but you don't know them. You can only know about 10 people intimately. You know, maybe a dozen or more people you could know intimately. But you start getting into the hundreds and, and you're going to be missing somebody. You're not going to know them. You're not going to have a clear picture of them. And, the, uh, so this, you gather in the small group to know them, but then you want that group to be connected with another group or other groups that are doing the same thing. If you're not doing that, you're not seeking the kingdom. You're just seeking your local congregation. And so the your connection point to those other groups is your minister. This is 90% of his responsibility to you is to connect you with the other 90% of the congregation of a 100 families. So that's that his job is not to tell you what everything means. Everybody has that job. We should all be discussing what the Bible means, what pure religion is, uh, why there's a tree of knowledge and a tree of life, uh, what that means, how that implements, what does it mean to seek the kingdom. We should all be concerned with that. We can all talk about that. And every one of us will have an opinion about that. But the purpose is to find out what the opinion of God is. Well, the opinion of Christ is that we needed to sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. And we needed to connect each of our groups of ten with nine other groups of ten so that we would be the hundreds. And we would do this in ranks of 50. If there were 5,000 people there, there'll be ranks of 50. In other words, 50 times 100 is 5,000. That's 5,000 families that gathered there. And that was probably one of the festivals. Either Pentecost or uh, Feast of Tabernacles. But they don't even make reference to the name of why they were all there. But they certainly are showing us what they were all doing. And they they all shared what they had so that there was actually a surplus. And we see the early church doing this in 150 A.D. when there were these dirts. We see Paul implementing that with Barnabas when there was a shortage in one part of the kingdom. They knew where to take what they needed to take to help the other part of the kingdom. And because they were actually willing to take the time to sit down in the tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands, they were able to help one another. We have hundreds of families across the United States and in Australia, and there are even some growing in Europe. But if you want to really move towards the kingdom of God, the right to be ruled by God, that free form of government, you can't make everybody else do it. You're not going to do it by vote. The majority are not going to go this way. The majority will self-destruct, yelling and throwing their temper tantrums. Uh, You know, right now, one party is in power, but that could swing the other way. And then that crazy party screaming and yelling and yelling obscenities and dressing up with pink hats and and bizarre outfits and everything, they may take over and then they're going to take the whole world and they're down their 
rivers and eddies of destruction. But the the conservatives aren't really much better. They're not seeing the truth about other things. And so corruption is still growing underneath and, and eating away. The only thing you can do is to turn around and repent. You need to look at yourself Look at your relationships with the rest of the world. Are they covetous relationships? Or are they like those guys who say, we do not eat at the Parthenos. We do not take of their benefits. But they also are foolish virgins. They don't sit down at the tens, hundreds, and thousands. So, And you will often find this amongst the people who want to blame the government or their status, or the, the present state of things, on the government, on FDR, on UCCs, or, you know, and, and this particular individual who called me up in the middle of the night, all of a sudden I find out he's he's following this uh, Judge Von Reitz uh, lady. She goes by all kinds of different names. I'm not, I'm not sure I got that name quite right. We have an article up on her. And they're all kind of the same thing, but they've, you know, they change them and everything. But the, the, the basic premise is that, well, I'm not even going to go, you have to go read the article. The reality is, is they're just blaming, that they're, in, in her whole philosophy, there is nothing about the fact that we have been covetous of our neighbor's goods and our parents have been covetous. And our parents have been slothful and we have been slothful in the ways of seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It's not fraud. It's not somebody has usurped. It's not that they have strayed from the principles of the Constitution of the United States. It's the fact that you have strayed from the principles of righteousness. The righteousness of God, of the love of neighbor, of willing to take the time to sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and find out how we can help one another. How you can home school, home health, home industry, get your own businesses going. I mean, there's no end to it. You can create an entire economy and it's absolutely legal right now in the world, even if you have to get the number in the country that you live, even if you have to send your kids to uh, uh, school, a regular school. I mean, what, that particular country, they have lots of private schools. The, the one I was talking about. One of them is the Waldorf schools. And Waldorf schools, uh, are based on parental involvement. And there's a lot of good theories about the Waldorf schools. And, uh, we can tell you all about that. Homeschooling groups should look at some of their practices as well as a lot of the other curriculums that are out there. And you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But uh, one of the things about the Waller Schools is it heavily dependent upon parental involvement. But as soon as the government started financing the Waldorf schools, they said, oh, well, we'll help you out with government assistance. As soon as they started giving them extra money to help them out, guess what happened? Parental involvement began to drop. The parental involvement in the education of their children began to drop. So the thing is, is that if you structure the way in which you actually relate to one another and understand the principles of those structures, you sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands, you gather those, each ten gathers with another 
group of nine tens, and then they are linked together, you will all have ministers that you pick, not for the reasons that most of the churches out there are picking ministers, not because they tickle your ears, but because you see them as genuinely men of service, men who care about others as much as they care about themselves, men who are actually striving and seeking the kingdom in different capacities, different ways, but they're starting that direction. They're not going to be perfect at it. But they're they're willing to go the extra ten feet, the extra mile, to pursue it, not only for themselves, but for you. Well, as soon as you sit down in those tens, and, 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 and just in your personal testimony are actually doing this, so that we know it, we will recognize that minister, and he can come on the minister calls uh, that we have connecting people all over on Monday. What are we going to talk about this week? On that, well, several topics have come up. And, but I'm not telling you on the radio. You can just ask your minister. But if you won't sit down in the tens, you don't have a minister who will be at the call that you can ask. And so you're not going to find out what we're going to talk about. I've, I've jotted down a few things. I've talked to some of the ministers about some things that we ought to talk about. And those are the things that go on behind the scenes for those people who are willing to sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. I am sure that at that meeting where Jesus was at, everybody would not sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. Well, guess what? If you didn't sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands, you didn't get no loaves and fishes. Because you had to do that first. That's the way Christ commanded. And so maybe this afternoon, we'll talk a little bit about what a disciple is. Because... You know, it's the same word translated in disciple everywhere in the New Testament. The word disciple only shows up like once in the Old Testament. And uh, and it's often translated something other than disciple. But they actually mean about the same thing. A disciple is someone that Christ is teaching. And he was clearly teaching the apostles things that he was not teaching the people that just came around. And that's... That a disciple is a student, student minister. He was going to appoint the kingdom to his disciples. He wasn't going to appoint the kingdom to everybody who just came around and gathered in free assemblies. But the kingdom of God is the right to be ruled by God. If you want your spiritual eyes opened, you have to admit you've got a problem. You have to admit that you are, your ego is not going to figure out the truth. Your intellect is not going to figure out the truth. In order to get back there, you have to go back the way that Cain went away, the way that Lamech went away, the way that David went away, the way the people of Israel went away when they elected Saul. And you have to go back the other way. So you have to sit down in this group and start caring about your neighbor as much as you care about yourself. That's not going to get you in. You're not going to get into the kingdom by your works. But you're going to see yourself clear. You're going to see your relationships clear. You know, it's not about feeling good. It's about doing good. Because in doing good, you'll see how you're not as good as you thought you were. And then you can say the prayer of the publican. Because you know that you're a sinner. You know that you need mercy. And then God will begin to open your eyes. But if you're going to be a foolish virgin, you're going to be left outside, knocking and not let in. If you're following any kind of philosophy that is blaming everything on everybody else, 
then you're not going to get it. You have to start seeing where you fell short, where you failed, where you were confused, where you didn't see clearly, where you went down the wrong way. And then you have to care about your neighbor seeing the truth that you're seeing as much as you see it yourself. That doesn't mean going out and badgering him with all the new things that you've discovered. It's a, because you have to let him wake up too. If you decide to be egotistical and blame things on other people, other systems, other, you know, generations, everything is everybody else's fault. You are predestined to fail. If you decide to see the truth about yourself and admit that you can't do it on your own. You can't figure it out on your own. You cannot change yourself or pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And you come with a humble heart willing to lay down your life, to lay down your ego, to lay down yourself daily in service to others in hopes that they will see what you're beginning to see. Then your eyes will be opened and then you will see and you will be graced by God. But what that will look like, it will look like people who sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands, who actually give some part of themselves in some form or another on a regular basis. Just like your heart beats on a regular basis, you have to give on a regular basis. You have to give to others. Because God gave to you freely, you have to give to others freely. This brings you closer to God. This will open your eyes. This will allow His light to shine in your heart. And then you will see more about yourself. You will have more revelation about your own weaknesses. The more you see that, the more God will open your eyes automatically. Because it takes place at the same time. So you can see the problems of the world. And you can, you won't be predestined to destruction. You will begin to become predestined to salvation. And you will begin to see when you have to do this or when you have to do that, when you have to turn to the left, when you have to turn to the right, when you have to go and seek shelter, when you have to go out into the world. You'll know these things, not because you figured it out, but because there will be light coming through you. And you know what that light does? It scares evil. So evil people come around who look really good. You know, they know how to look good like an angel of light. They know how to put on the makeup. They know how to put on the outfits. They look really good. They will not look so good and they will actually be afraid of you. They will stay away. And the more you bring light into your gatherings by bringing light into your own heart, the more you forgive one another, the more you become incompatible with those people who are not living of forgiveness, who are living of ego, who are living of force, who are living, uh, willing to sacrifice their neighbor for what they want. The more you will become incompatible with them and the more they will want to leave. Now hopefully, our hope is that what they will do is begin to see the truth and they will let evil leave them. And they will turn around and walk with us. That's our hope. But you want to, you want to find that perfect congregation, you have to become perfect yourself. And you can't make yourself perfect with your own knowledge. 
You are perfected in Christ when Christ's light shines in you, and Christ's light will not shine in, in you unless you walk in the ways of Christ. Jesus said, come follow me to his disciples. That's something we see repeated over and over again. And then he gave them special instructions. He had already told the the Pharisees, I'm going to take the kingdom from you and I'm going to appoint it to others. He says, I'm going to appoint it to my little flock. And then he eventually appoints it to them and he says, not to be like the governments of the Gentiles who exercise authority one over the other. Yet all these people go to church thinking they're getting closer to Christ. That they're, and some of them have a little bit. But if they're really getting closer to Christ, they should be able to get the rest of the message. And the rest of the message is, is that you have to stop coveting your neighbors because to the agency of government, you have to sit down in uh, a network that can provide a daily administration, not through the force of the governments of the world, but through faith, hope, and charity and the perfect law of liberty. And if you are really awakening, the problem is that people are willing to awaken to this and they see that. Great. And I see them awaken to this. And I think that is great. But all of a sudden it comes to something that they have to also see the sin in their own heart. Their own anger. Their own resentment. Their own unforgiveness. Their own selfishness. Their own fear. Because anger and fear are the same thing. And when you start seeing that, it becomes uncomfortable. And they don't want that anymore. So they reject everything. They And what happens is they actually backslide. And they will not see the con man in their midst. They will have no protection against the con man in their midst. They have no protection against the thief or the murderer in their midst. They have no uh, protection, uh, the Jezebels of the world. They, they, they will have no protection and they will be eaten up and devoured and spit out. You have to see yourself to see others. You have to forgive yourself to forgive others. You have to forgive God. Stop blaming your situation on God. That's what the atheist often does. Is he, you know, uh, he blames everything on this belief in God. But then all you have to do is explain the definition of pure religion. Because see, they're all, every one of the guys, I hardly know an atheist that isn't enmeshed. Although I've come across that, that aren't enmeshed in public religion, civil religion. You know, they're all registered down at the Temple of Saturn so that they can get benefits. Now there's some that aren't, so I, I, that's why I corrected and said it's not all. So anyway, if you want to know what we're going to talk about on the minister's call, you need to have a minister. If you have a minister, you'll get to ask him that. So heads up to the minister. You better show up on the minister's call because your congregants may ask you, what you guys talk about? <laughs> and you'll say, I don't know. I, I always forget to come on the call. <laughs> so I'm, this way I can put pressure on you without exercising any authority. When you become a minister of a congregation, you're a servant of that congregation by default. You're actually a servant of Christ. You want to do right according to the will of God by that congregation. But your mission is to seek the kingdom and you're part of that connecting points of seeking the kingdom. And you got to get soldered in. And it takes a little heat sometimes to get you soldered in right. 
So I'm raising the heat level a little bit. Congregants, hold your ministers accountable. Are they connecting? Are they developing a relationship with the other ministers? Are they connecting you with all the other people that they come across that say they're seeking the kingdom? Because you're going to need that. When times are hard, how are you going to get, you know, uh, when you run into problems, when you run into, you know, legal issues, health issues, uh, business issues, economic issues, uh, family issues, who are you going to go to? Well, you want to go to people who are successful in all these areas. And people who care about you as much as they care about themselves. You know, if if you have a problem, they, they're looking for a solution. I, I, I saw that with some people immediately uh, at the festival. Some people were always volunteering and helping and, and concerned about other people. And so that's what we do is we, in the congregations, we, we, we offer tasks. Okay, we want to accomplish this. Here's a task. Here's a mission. You know, become a trustee. Be, do this, do that, whatever. It's all voluntary. But I know that when you lay down your life for your fellow man, no greater love have you. If you want to be loved by God, you want God's grace, you have to extend grace to others. You have to extend love to others. You have to extend forgiveness to others. He says, if you don't forgive, neither will I. Uh, my Father forgive you. If you don't give, why do you, would you expect God to give to you? If you don't serve others, why would you think Christ came to serve you? Why do you think you're part of the us that Paul keeps talking about when you have no daily ministration except the men who exercise authority one over the other? Everybody has gone away from the ways of the kingdom. And they have imagined that they have the doctrine of Jesus Christ, yet they're not doing what Christ commanded. Which, you know, even if you didn't know Christ commanded it, this, this, this is the ultimate survival tool. It's not to gather together with ten other men who want to survive above all else. It's to gather with other men who care about their neighbor as much as they care about themselves. That is the motivating factor for them to come together. Not just their little goopy group congregation, but all the other congregations they don't even know. They're casting their bread upon the waters in hopes that it comes back to them. And they're putting into motion a spiritual power. They are, you know, like connecting on the switchboard of God. Because they're connecting with one another. We're made in the image of God. If you want God to care about you, you must care about others. And that's this gets into the itemized requirements for the disciples of Christ which we don't have time to go into right now but uh, maybe this afternoon show or next week we will join the network and we will share that information with you till then peace on your house and may God be with you Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church.
Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God. And I'm uh, I'm using some new equipment today, and we're testing a new way of doing the radio show. And we're going to be doing regular podcasts, and uh, we're also going to be making uh, videos uh, that will be uh, trying to express this idea of seeking the Kingdom of God and His righteousness. What does that look like? How do you do that? Uh, what do you do to make that a reality? And uh, I can't do it all. Uh, I have no real staff. Uh, we have no real wages here. We we don't do this for the money. So we're dependent in order to create a national and international network of people. It's going to be up to you. But liberty has always been up to you. Being free has always been up to you. Being righteous it certainly has always been up to you. So it's just a matter of whether or not you're going to do it. And uh, you don't have to wait for anybody else to start that process. You just have to repent and seek the kingdom of God. Repent meaning to think a different way. It's not dependent on what other people think. It's not dependent upon what other people do. It's completely up to you. that You know, to seek life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness... Uh, is a job that is left to the individual. And happiness is really just a byproduct of righteousness. You don't really seek happiness. You seek righteousness. And happiness will come as a byproduct of that. It doesn't mean that it will just automatically come. It won't come easily. But it will be up to you. And if you want to be happy, the key thing is, is that you want happiness for others you want righteousness for others you you want to be free you have to want freedom for others you cannot whatever you want for yourself you have to want that for others as you judge so shall ye be judged other people can make choices that are bad you simply have to stop making bad choices you know who are you going to marry who are you going to uh how are you going to raise your children? How are you going to make a living? These are choices that you have. Like I said this morning when I was talking, there is your opinion of reality. There is my opinion of reality. And there is God's opinion of reality. The problem with you depending upon your own power to decide good and evil, right and wrong, righteousness or unrighteousness. The problem with that is it's going to bump into everybody else's. And uh, you you don't carry enough weight to make that, your reality, truth. So you have to find truth. You have to find God's opinion of reality. And one of the places we look for that is in the Bible. But unfortunately, if you're not looking with the right eyes, listening with the right ears, you will not get it. You will not hear it. I was just talking to uh, someone from another country this morning. And uh, we were talking about uh, the the phrase, pay it forward. We were talking about fixing something. And they said, I want to fix it right. So it won't be a problem to anybody else. He didn't want to fix it so it won't be a problem to him. But he didn't want to, he wanted to fix it so it wouldn't be a problem to the next generation. 
to somebody else, someone else down the road, even if you were owned a place and you were fixing it up to sell it, are you fixing it up just so you get that check cleared, last till the check clears, or are you fixing it up so that the next person will not receive headaches and burdens and difficulties? Because, you know, the, the phrase came up, the phrase, pay it forward. People talk about doing favors for others. Pay it forward. Do, you know, if somebody does good for you, you do good for somebody else. What most people are doing is they're billing it forward. <laughs> they're passing it on. That they, they want what they want now and somebody else can worry about paying for it la- later. The antithesis of Sabbath keeping. Sabbath keeping is about debt. We talked this morning about feasts. So many people want to have the feast. They want to have Everybody wants to have festivals now. Festivals are the, one of the most popular events of the, in, in public life there is today. Uh, there are people making millions and millions and millions of dollars on festivals. We just talked about the Burning Man Festival. $400 per person. Some of them paying thousands of dollars to get special treatment. But uh, the reality, if you just figured $100 per person... And you multiply that times 50,000, that's $5 million. If they clear $200 per person out of the $400 entry fee, well, how much is that? (laughs) That is considerable. Uh, You're talking millions upon millions of dollars that they're making with these deals. And it takes a lot of effort to do it. Uh, Burning Man started with like nine people going out there to the desert. And it grew from there. And they learned how to put on a festival and, and make it a bigger and bigger event. But of course, we admit that that's low-hanging fruit. You're getting there are people who travel from England. Uh, someone local uh, knows somebody that travels travels from England every year uh, to go to the Burning Man Festival, and they, you know, that's a big expense. Come all the way over, go there, and for what? What, why did they go there? Why do so many people go? Well, there's lots of so-called music, and some of it's probably good. There's supposedly a lot of art, but there's kind of a, kind of a, it's all the festivities and the, the festival activity of it. And some of that's not bad, but most of it, you know, that's the thing is that when you, when you do something for a variety of reasons, some of the reasons taint the whole thing. Spoil the whole pudding, so to speak. And have a counter effect that of what the festivals were with Israel in the beginning. The festivals had a purpose of uniting the nation so that it wouldn't be overrun by other nations. So that the people would not be enslaved. They would not become subject to dictators. And that, that festival was part of a whole system of uniting the people. And most of the people who want to have the festival now, they have it for the wrong reason. They, they don't even, they don't even know what the right reason is. It's like keeping the Sabbath. The people who keep, or think of themselves as Sabbath keepers and they, they go to church on Saturday instead of on Sunday. And they think they're Sabbath keepers. Or even if they, Sabbath was never about going to church, Sabbath was celebrated in the home. And, but they still don't know what the Sabbath was all about. I would, I would estimate 90%, and that, that's a generous estimate of the people who consider themselves Sabbath keepers, whether Jew or Christian, 
do not understand what the Sabbath is. They don't understand what Jesus or what God was talking about when he mentions the Sabbath and the Ten Commandments. That Sabbath in the Ten Commandments was about debt, about working first and taking your rest. It's about when you take your rest in relationship to when you earn your rest. That's what it was about. They are completely oblivious to that. To me, when I read it, it just jumps out at me. It's so obvious. You know, why Why can't people see that? Uh, honoring thy father and the mother. I heard somebody talking about that just the other day uh, in great detail about honoring your father and your mother. Actually, there was an article written, and I may write an article encountering it, that there is no more honor. And I respect the guy who wrote the article. He's, you know, the coach. I'll call him the coach. And uh I think he's he's not far from the kingdom, but he doesn't know what the word honor means in the Bible. The Hebrew word for honor, he doesn't know what it means. He has probably a better sense of what honor means in one sense than the average guy. But he doesn't know what it actually means. It's the definition of the word that he it confuses him. Uh, because he doesn't know it. Nobody's taught it. But yet, I see in his life, there is that spirit of honoring, but he doesn't, when he goes to articulate it, he's talking about the definition of honor by looking it up in Webster's Dictionary. Well, what came first, Webster's Dictionary or the Bible? The Webster's Dictionary is attempting to define an English word as it is used today. You can look through all the Webster's Dictionary and they change the definitions according to common use today. The Bible wasn't written today. It was written back then. It's what the word meant back then that you need to find out. And of course, we've talked about that. Religion. What is religion? Is that what you think about God? Because that's what the dictionary says today. But that's not what it meant when the Bible was written. And most of the time when they say religion, they're talking about bad religion. They're not talking about good religion. Well, what, what, what do they think? What do they believe that it meant back then? Well, the definition of the word threskia is what you do. The definition of pure religion is what you do being done, which is the taking care of the needy of society, without the spots. Of the world, and the word "world" was constitutional order and systems of government. So a lot of people go out there and they take care of the needy of society. They maybe even vote for programs to take care of the needy of society because they think of themselves as compassionate. But they spot their care for the needy with force because they have the government providing for the needy by forcing the contributions of the people. Well, if you want to force the contributions of the people, you will be enslaved. You will be brought into bondage because you want to put your neighbor into bondage and force your neighbor to take care of the needy of your society. We haven't even got into the question is the way in which you take care of the needy, who you give what to and when. I mean, you think taking care of the needy is allowing them to have medical care. Well, a great deal of medical care kills people. Doctors kill more people than guns. With medical mistakes, that's their statistic. 
They will tell you that we kill more people with medical mistakes than you kill with guns of any kind. You can actually throw in knives and baseball bats. They still kill more people with medical mistakes. And uh, the solutions of modern medicine often are do more damage than good. The side effects. You just read the side effects. Be a student of side effects, not a student of medicine. You're a better student of medicine if you read the side effects first, because that's what you... There are people taking two, three, four, five drugs every week or every day sometimes. And most of those drugs are to counteract the symptoms of drugs they were already taking. Also, in going to the doctor to take those drugs, you know, health by pharmaceutica, you are actually failing to do what you probably should do from the beginning. Like change your diet, change your ways, change your attitude, change your actions, your activity. Now, I'm not saying don't go to a doctor, but get wisdom first. Get self-discipline first. You know, I, I know people who were killing themselves. They knew they were killing themselves with their habits of smoking and eating. And they went to the doctor so that they can keep doing those bad things that were destroying their health. It's uh, it's uh, amazing. And, and they admitted it. But they didn't want to stop the bad habit. And they also, uh, some of those people I know personally, mistreated their spouse, their neighbor, their children, everybody has nothing but good things to say about them, and I'm not naming them, so I'm not speaking ill of the dead. I'm just talking about the principles that they were not taking care of others. They were using others, abusing others, putting themselves first over others. Again, that not pay it for it, but bill it for it. That somebody else pay for it. I'm not giving up my benefits. Actually, they, I know of one that shouted that. They weren't. Nobody better touch my benefits. Even if people are bankrupt. And everybody's losing. And everybody has to pay the debt. I'm not giving up my benefits. I want my benefits over other people. Saw them do the same thing with raising a child. And it caused the same rifts and problems in the relationship of that child with the parent. It, it's it's. But they don't want to see the truth. They don't want to see that they are a part of the problem. Government is not your problem. The rulers of the earth are not your problem. You are your problem. That if you, if you don't want to see that, if you don't want to see your part in the problem, if you want to blame everything on everybody else, their lack of understanding, their greed, their selfishness, their, their quest for power, their deceitfulness, I mean, a con man, you know what a con man uses to con somebody more than anything else? He uses the con in your own heart. He appeals to your greed, your avarice, your selfishness, your sloth. That's how he gains control over you. Adam was already on his way to the fall. 
before he fell. He he did not fall because he was deceived. He, if you read the context, you know he knew. He, he recognizes that what he is being asked to consume, to eat of, which wasn't an apple, but this eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He knew that he was not to do that. He was not deceived. His sin was not the result of the deception of others. They may have tried to deceive him, but he knew. His sin was that he refused to admit that he was in error. That he was doing wrong. What's your sin? You know, we can blame, you know, our failed marriage on our spouse. We can blame the uh, our uh, irresponsive uh, child, our uncaring child, our... Uh, I was trying to think of... I mean, the children have lots of different... Sometimes they're precocious, but sometimes they're actually almost malevolent. And uh, the self-destructive nature in our own children... That's there because of us. Because we were not the light that we should have been. We were not the light that we should have been because we were not willing to let the truth about our own hearts to be revealed to us. Much less to other people. This is why confession is such an important part of Christ's teachings and the teachings in the Bible. I'm not talking about confessions in a dark room with a priest. I'm talking about admitting the truth about ourselves, confessing to ourselves. And occasionally, we need to confess to others openly. I am a sinner. I am weak. I am need of mercy because I am a sinner. (laughs) You know, it's back to me. It's me. It's not somebody else. Because as soon as you start moving in that direction, seeing your part in it, and forgiving yourself, don't, if, see, all these people who go out and kill other people, and then kill themselves, like, you hear me talk about that, that that's a particular spiritual pattern, there's lots of spiritual patterns out there, and, I mean, it's, it's a demonic, hellish, spiritual obsession of destroying others and then destroying yourself. That has to do with, uh, Forgiveness. Now the reverse of that is to forgive others so that you can forgive yourself and be forgiven. So you cannot hold animosity towards others. They are ignorant. They are foolish. They are slothful. They are neglectful. They are ambitious. They are unappreciative. You cannot hold that against them. You are not judged. God is judged. Do not judge them. It brings you into judgment. Now, I'm talking about emotional. Now, that doesn't mean that, well, I always let child molesters do my babysitting because we have to forgive. No, you don't give license to sin, but you don't judge it. You can see it and observe it. You can recognize it. You can even tell them, but you do it without judgment. You don't hold it against them. Now, sometimes... I speak emotionally like, you know, that somebody, I'm not supposed to say that people were stupid or people are foolish or anything. And, and But the fact is I do that to emphasize that they are on a fool's errand when they are out to save themselves. And they don't stop being foolish 
They continue to be foolish, and they go the way of fools. But when you're out to save others, when you care about others, and this is why God gives the family, because the nature of the family is that you have to think about your spouse. You have to put them first. And over your own ambitions, desires, wants, self-gratification, you have you have to put them first in that effort to live. Their life is as important as your own, maybe a little more important. And then if they do the same, if they honor your sacrifice... Your life will become as important as their life. Or maybe a little more important. You have that. You have a family. Now you have two different opposing natures. The nature of a woman. The nature of a man. And they are coming into a a synchronization of the soul. They both care about one another as much as they care about themselves. Now, I'll get into the the discussion of what happens when one of them doesn't. <laughs> Everybody always brings that up first. Yeah, but what happens if she doesn't or he doesn't care about me as much as I care about him? As soon as that argument comes up in your mind, you know your focus is not right. You're, you're, you're doing, you're adaming, eving the situation again. It's not my fault. <laughs> it's her fault. <laughs> it's his fault. Get that out of your head. Look at the universe with you at the center. Not only of all the good things the universe has to offer, but of all the responsibility that goes along with that. So anyway, don't don't fall into that trap. You probably already have. I mean, it is so common. Yeah, but what about them? (laughs) So no, no. Let's focus on something you can do something about. You. And I, I said I'd get to it. Let's go to it right now. What happens if you enter into the relationship of marriage or any kind of relationship, friendship, marriage, father-son, uh, mother-daughter, father-daughter, any of these relationships, if you enter into them with the character of Christ, you enter into it to serve. And of course we know you don't want to serve the evil in a person. You know, I've actually seen parents do this. And and you've seen it too. You may not have put it together in this word, but almost everybody has seen it. Where the parent overindulges the child. Gives the child everything they want. Not everything they need. Everything they should have. But everything they want. As if they're winning the child's approval. And people do this without even thinking about it. They want to give gifts to their child. They want to give presents to their child. They want to give caresses to their child. They want to give hugs to their child. But why? Are they coming to serve what is righteous in their child? Or to make their child self-indulgent? Well, most people end up making their... I shouldn't say most people. Most rich people end up making their children as self-indulgent as they are. They're rich. They can have anything they want. And they want to make their children as self-indulgent as they are. They don't want to make their children unselfish. 
Now, I've seen children who of rich people who become unselfish go off on the missions, and, and they just work themselves to death trying to be the opposite of the self-indulgent parent. But they're doing it to prove their parent wrong. They're not doing it to save their parent. They're doing it to, as a, as a reaction to their parent. Because they, they're, they're being kind to other people because they hate their parent. <laughs> you know, it, that is not going to bear good fruit. It will seem to. You have lots of poor people who will gather around you, you know, the rice bowl Christians. No, there is no escaping. Righteousness is righteousness, and that's what you're supposed to be seeking. Yes, you should help people. You can even start the missions and go on the missions. But you don't do it to prove that your father was selfish, or your mother was selfish, and self-indulgent rich person, which you despise and hate. You're judging them. So... You know, what, however your problems are manifesting themselves, you have to see that. In order to see that, you have to be still. Because your brain is a, a tempest of waves and currents that you can't control. You, you, you can't rest at night many times without Maybe drinking or working yourself to exhaustion. Now, I, I'm a person, I don't sleep much at night. I, I, you know, five hours is about all I do. And, and I, I work, uh, manual labor most of the day. And then, uh, I work, uh, writing and answering phone calls, even in the middle of the radio program. <laughs> or whatever. I, you know, uh, Try to help people, and like I talked this morning, that we have minister call on on Mondays. And if you have sat down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands, and talked to your minister and working with your minister, not to save yourself, not to get benefits for yourself, but to benefit others, and that takes a while before you get to that, because the, no sooner does somebody benefit others, and, and you know through contributions or whatever then he wants others to benefit him back. He wants those gifts to come back to him. That's not the way the kingdom works. The way the kingdom works is that you you cast your bread upon the waters and you do it through your congregation. You don't send it off to the United Way. I mean, you can do that if you want, but uh, you do it through a network of people that is trying to gather for the in the name of Christ. A network of people that are trying to gather to care for one another as much as we care for ourselves. And so you gather together in that network, and so you give through that network. You don't send it to me necessarily. I mean, people can. You know, we had this discussion with one of the ministers just the other day where somebody sends to me, and they don't give to their local congregation. No, you empower others to make choices. So you give to your local congregation, and your local minister takes control of that, and then he decides, do we need it here in this congregation? Okay, we don't. Then he decides where to give it. Some of it he will give to his minister, and some of it he may give to other congregations directly. 
or spend it in the community as an outreach to try to get other people to go back to what we used to have in this country, which what actually made America great, go back to a society that takes care of 90% of all of its needy by charity. And I could say 99.9% of all of its needy by charity, not by forced contributions. That's what made America great. Not the Constitution, not presidents, not the Bill of Rights, but the willingness to sacrifice ourselves for our fellow man. Then we were a nation of love, a nation of righteousness. Everybody wasn't righteous in America, but that was what made America great. That's what gave it its real power. They have natural resources in South America, but why didn't they become as great as the United States, as powerful as the United States? Now, our goal is not to become powerful. Our goal is not to become happy. Our goal is the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The right to be ruled by God on an individual basis and the righteousness of God. That has to be our goal. Everything else will be added unto you if that is the way you choose to go. It's very important that you personally choose that way to go and go that way. So anyway, we'll talk a little bit more about that when we come back. Well, welcome back. So in the, uh, that little promo that uh, I often play on this uh, particular broadcast, we talk about the, the keys of the kingdom in the past, in the present, and in the future. And the keys of the kingdom are the same in the past, the present, and the future. The kingdom of God is the same. God is the same. Tell you the truth, so are you the same. And you need to become different. You need to think a different way. In order to do that, you need God to guide you in how you think. And the way you think. And the thoughts that enter into your mind. Because right now, many of the thoughts that enter into your mind come into your mind by way of the world, the flesh, and the devil. You become predestined by all those other forces working upon you. They make you angry. They make you happy. They make you unhappy. And you have no control over that. So how do you get control over that? You repent. You think differently. Well, what different way are you supposed to think? How do you know what way to think? So what I'm saying to you is that if you follow a certain path, and you will find that difficult at times, when you go that way, and that's what Christianity was, was a way, it will bring, bring you face to face with your failings, which is sometimes painful. And you will either endure that pain, accept that pain, so that you can go on and grow, or you will run from it. And I've seen time and time again that people come to us and start joining the network, they re- make realizations, they understand stuff, they think, you know, I agree with you 100%. I'm going to do this and that. Oh, this is great. And all of a sudden they get to a place where they're looking for a way out. And the reason they're looking for a way out is they have finally come face to face with that that they do not want to see. That which they want to hide from. About themselves. You know, there's lots of layers to almost everybody's delusion. They might see things, feel things, experience things, be connected to things, be obsessed by things, be addicted to things that they should not and sometimes don't want to have anything to do with and they can't seem to break that addiction. And we can help them 
break that addiction, addiction and overcome that delusion so they will become free again, maybe unite them with their family, maybe uh, make them a functioning member of society again so that they can go out and support themselves and be a benefit to others. But you know what? After you overcome one delusion, you know what's underneath that? It's another delusion. It may not be as extreme or as costly to them, you know, physically or emotionally or spiritually, but it's still delusion. So now we have to deal with that underlying delusion. There's another one. You know, I told people this, that, you know, pain is a gift. You know, all God's punishments are gifts. God does not punish you with any other intention but to gift you. To give you what you need. As many as I love, I also rebuke. Rebuke is a gift. When I say that's nonsense, you're being stupid, you're being foolish, that's a gift. I'm not, I'm not saying it to put you down. I'm, I'm showing you, you know, you're stepping on a nail. (laughs) You're hitting your finger with a hammer. Stop. It's hurting you. You have your head in a microwave. Take it out. You know, I'm just trying to awaken you to something that is doing damage to you. I'm not telling you things to put you down or make you feel bad. But I'm not going to tell you things to make you feel good either. So some people say I'm too hard on people. I'm not even talking, talking generalities. Most people who go to Christian church are actually workers of iniquity and pushing against what Christ said to do. They're not just not doing what Christ said to do. They're pushing against what Christ said to do. And that's why you get these stories about all these, you know, priests who are torturing these children and abusing these children and everything. And it's not all priests, but I mean, there was evidently a sizable amount of people that were doing it. But many other priests who never engage in such actions would not tolerate such actions. They're doing something else. They're tickling the ears of the people so they don't actually look for God and righteousness. They're making people, this is more common amongst Protestants, they're making people feel self-righteous or mistaken self-righteousness for righteousness. So, one is an abusive violent, traumatic treatment of the poor and the victim of society, the the helpless of society. The other one is slow poison. So which one is more evil? You know, the guy who's slowly turning up the temperature to boil the frog is just as guilty as the one who plunges a knife into its heart or stomps it with his foot Both end in the destruction of the frog. Both end in the destruction of others and their souls and their opportunities and their life. Your life is an opportunity to choose God, to choose life. The way you choose God and choose life is to choose life for others. Choose to give life to others. If you had an abusive wife who lied to you, cheated, was lazy, put you down, humiliated you in front of other people, what do you think would come of such actions 
if you actually had the love of Christ in you for her and everybody else around you? Do you think she would have had the power to do that? The husband who beats you and abuses you. I mean, how many women do you know that were abused by their husband? And I don't want to excuse that in any way, shape, or form. I mean, the reason woman was built... I mean, she has a, a, a sometimes a more challenging physical task than her husband because she has to... You know, the, the old comedian who goes to work and comes home... And he sees his wife laying on the couch. And he sees the house is a little bit of a mess. And he thinks, well, what did you do today? And she looks at him and she says, I made a lung. Because <laughs> she's pregnant. And she's making a baby. That's a job. That That's quite a job to make a baby. It's even more of a job to raise that child. To take care of that child. With love and patience. Because... If you don't do it with love and patience, you're not going to get the same results. If you don't do it with the same willing sacrifice, you know, these women who abort their babies, you know, maybe their sin is not as great as the women who have the baby, but abuse that child and and create a demon in that child, a home for demons in that child because of the way in which they traumatize and abuse that child. I don't excuse either one. Both are destructive. Like I said, well, what's worth worse, stomping a, a, a frog or slow poison? Stomping a child in abortion or letting the child be born and then poisoning it? Poisoning its heart, poisoning its mind, poisoning its body. So that, you know, I mean, the number of children I know that are overweight and their parents are all overweight because they don't have good eating habits. They don't have good habits of self-control. They're, they're not, they're not giving life. They, they, they're raising their children to be like them so that they will feel justified when they look at the despicable lives of their children. And I've seen it. I mean, it's, it's heart wrenching. I could go through the details of it. Anybody who, you know, their children are overweight. They're overweight. When their kids home, come home from school, they buy them five candy bars apiece every day. And their children, I mean, so that when the child is 15 years old, they weigh 300 pounds going to school. They have to have knee operations before they're 20 because they've destroyed their knees trying to carry 300 pounds around all the time. More than 300 pounds. What, and it's not genetic. It's, it's the, it's predestined. But it's only predestined by the choice they make early on to not see the truth about themselves and their own self-indulgence. So, you know, what? now those are extreme cases. It's easy to point to the ex- extreme cases and say, oh, look what you're doing. Oh, look what they're doing. Oh, yeah, but looking and seeing what they're doing, it may have some value in your quest for the truth. But unless you couple it with as much intensity to know what are you doing, it's not going to help you. The only thing that really will bring about that change is admission and confession. That you you are willing to see your fault, your failing. 
Because if you don't, you will have no control over your future. You will be predestined to repeat the same mistakes. People say if you don't learn from history, you're condemned to repeat it. Well, let's take that down to something a little less expansive than the history of mankind. And let's take a look at your history. What have you done wrong? Now, you can look at what you have done wrong with this human inflection. This human insight. uh, Human reflection upon your own life. But that's... Now you're looking at your past life as a historical narrative, which is your your history, your 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 it's your knowledge of your history. Well, I can guarantee you, everybody's knowledge of their history is selective. You can always remember easier what you did to others. Rather than what, uh, excuse me, I, I said that in reverse. You can always remember selectively what others did to you rather than what you did to others. You don't want to look at your failings. I understand that. But if you want to grow, that's where you have to start. And you have to do it with a heart that is willing to forgive yourself. Do not judge yourself. You have no right to judge others, nor do you have a right to judge yourself. You are a product. You are predestined by choices made a long time ago by your parents and by you to be what you are today. You don't get to blame it on your parents. That's just what you inherited. Those are the burdens you inherited. That's one of the things. Was this man, you know, crippled because of the sins of his parents or his own sins? The fact is the burdens that you receive, the heartache that you receive, Again, is not meant to punish you, but to awaken you, so that you may have life more abundant. God, you know, we just call it punishment because it hurt. We just call it punishment because it was inconvenient. Because it violated our happiness, supposedly. But the reality is that punishment is trying to bring you to greater happiness. And I'll give you the phenomena that I was going to talk to you about briefly. Just we'll move it over into the physical realm. Because now everything in the physical realm has a pre-existing spiritual identity and characteristic and reality. The world, you know, I said this morning, you can't see God, but you can see what he made. And you can see God in what he made. And one of the things he made was you. He didn't make you do bad things but the very nature of you he created. So everything in creation is a reflection of the existence of God and the character of God. So what does that mean? Okay, now that, that's it's independent of your interpretation of what you see. It's independent of what you're willing to see and what you're not willing to see. It's independent of that. But the reality is the the image of God is in nature. It's in there. You may not be good at seeing it or deciphering it, but it's in there. But we'll reduce this down to a physical reality. Okay, you have a pain. And I tell people when you have a pain, physical pain, injury, sickness, something, just a pain that occurs in you. And you wonder, like, what's that? Well, that's good. That's, that's, that's the first step. You ask the question. Now, did you ask rightly? Did you say what? 
is that? Oh, now, what is that? Oh, what is that? You know, uh, as, you know, what is that? When you put in that other inflection, you don't really want to know. You're already warring against the pain. You're slapping the pain. You're fighting against the pain. You're resenting the pain. You're rejecting the pain. You're angry at the pain. You're resentful of the pain. Whatever. You've disempowered the pain. Whatever is causing the pain has received power from you because of the way in which you ask, what is that? When you ask, Lord, what are you trying to tell me with this pain? (laughs) My dearest Lord and God and creator of heaven and earth, what does thou seek to give me? Enlighten me. Share with me. In this pain. Thank you, Lord, for this pain. That was one of the things the Essenes would often do. Somebody was torturing an Essene. They said they would bless them and thank them for being tortured. That's actually a a clever way of dealing with... If you're going to be tortured, that's a clever way of dealing with the torture. (laughs) That's good. Now, you can't just imitate it. You have to really live it. But anyway, and there's a reason why. It has to do with the psychology of mankind. You can't get away from it. It's just built in you from the beginning. But now, what's the second step? Other than to look at the pain as a messenger. And of course it is. I mean, if you step on a thorn and you feel that thorn in your foot. You know, I stepped on uh, uh, some greasewood the other day. And I had these rubber, thin rubber sole shoes on. The greasewood went right up into my shoe and into the ball of my foot. And I got the message. <laughs> I am stepping on something sharp. And my I got the message right away. And I was able to, you know, kind of curl up my foot and take my weight off my foot and reach down there. And I pull out this two-inch thorn that went up into my foot. I've done the same before with nails and stuff like that. Because the pain was giving me a message. Don't put your foot down. You know, you touch a stove and it's hot. And you feel a little bit of that burn. What do you do? Let go. <laughs> you know, it hurts. Uh, because there's a message in that. This is hot. Don't touch me anymore. <laughs> so, you have other pains in your body. You know, in your stomach, in your side, and wherever. And you feel that pain. Or in your legs, in your knees. You feel that pain. Go to the pain. With the love of Christ. Accept the pain. Accept it as a gift. It's trying to tell you something. Don't resent it. Don't fight against it. Don't war against it. Go to the pain. Feel the pain. Be aware of the pain. Forgive the pain. And now this is a phenomenon that is reported back to me a lot of times. I probably shouldn't tell it on the radio to everybody, but I know there aren't millions of people listening to me. <laughs> but uh, so I'll give. And this is a part of a hint. Showing you something in, in the physical reality of our personalities, our corporeal and incorporeal personalities, that if you understand, and you will not understand if you're going to eat just of the tree of knowledge, you have to eat of the tree of life to really understand this, that when you go to the pain with a forgiving, loving, patient uh, heart, it may go away. But it may also 
seem to reappear, or actually seem to move to another place. Like those beetles in the movie, what was it, uh, Mummies. <laughs> they get under your skin and run around underneath there. The pain will actually seem to move to another place. And uh, I've actually seen that lump like beetle moving around on people. And I wasn't alone. Other people saw it. I, I was talking to somebody and somebody else was talking to them. At the same time, we were both ministers. One would say something, the other one would say something. It's one of those moments where we were really confronting the evil that lurked in the person. And we did it because deep down the person was a small child. They had never matured beyond their own trauma as a child. And they were much older. They were in their 60s. And we were talking to them. And I would say something, and you would see this, I mean, it was a large lump, like a, like the beetles in the movie, uh, protruding through the skin. It would run over to the other side. It would move all the way across, uh, from one shoulder, all the way across in front of the neck, and over to the other shoulder. And you would see it move. And then the other guy would start to talk to her. It was a very loving, patient talk. You could, she was under a little bit of strain and pressure, uh, but uh, we were comforting her at the same time. We weren't ganging up on her. We were ganging up on that little thing running back and forth because when he would begin to talk, it would run back to the other side where I was. <laughs> it's happened almost more than half a dozen times. We would see it moving back and forth. And we never said a thing about it. And then until afterwards, we went to get something to eat and everything. It was all great. There were other people in the room, everything. Most of them were oblivious to what was going on. And actually, just recently, I heard that person has reconnected, I believe, with one of the people that were in the room, which will do them no good. They That individual will do them harm. He's a user and a con person. I I love him. I hope the best for him, but he is bound in that, and unless he's repented and changed, he is still the same person, and he will not be able to change. But the reality is, if they're getting connected back with that person and going there, instead of seeking the kingdom and his righteousness, that little thing that was running back and forth in that person will get more and more power, and life is going on. They will not live much longer. We pray and hope that they may live. But the reality was, on the way back to get something to eat, we were walking along and all of a sudden he says, Hey, and did you see that thing moving back and forth? <laughs> he was seeing it. I was seeing it. There weren't very many other people in the room that were seeing it. They were engrossed in other things. But uh we both were aware of it. We said nothing about it. And we were aware that there was there was evil presence in that person. Now, that person isn't evil. But evil was present in that person and making use of that person as a habitation. So much so that it actually manifested a physical presence in her. Exactly what that was that was manifesting the physical presence. There's a lot of things under the sun that everybody doesn't know. But the fact is, as I was speaking to her, it moved away from me. As he was speaking to her, it moved away from him. But it didn't leave her. Because in order for it to leave her, she must be willing to see it. 
But if she would be willing to see it and see the truth that we were imparting to her in the form of words, because that's all I'm giving you now is the form of That's what you're hearing over the radio and over the recordings is a form. You know, it's it's a painting a picture of principles with words and stories. But in order for those principles to dwell in you as power and virtue, the virtue that came out of Christ went into another woman and healed her. That kind of virtue that actually shines out. In order to receive that virtue, you must be willing to see the truth about yourself. But anyway, when you go to the pain that you feel, you're all alone, your prayer closet, you have this pain that's been kind of nagging, you feel it, you go to it, you forgive it, you... you experience don't hide from it don't drug yourself away from it but receive it you often feel it diminish but then you'll feel it pop up like it's popping up in another realm what it actually is it's it's going to the next layer because all your problems come from the original trauma and it comes in many different forms the the original trauma is is actually will eventually take you back to that original trauma of the nature of sin and then you will be free. If you go all the way back there and see it, and it flees before you. You can't destroy it, but your willingness to see the truth about yourself, feel the truth with forgiveness and love and patience, will drive evil out of you. It will drive evil away. You're not doing it yourself because it's the light of God coming into you, but if you want to make, bring the light of God into you, how is it that we, that God said, you, I will not hear you? Because, because you would not hear him. So now hear him. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love one another as Christ has loved us. Cast your bread upon the waters. Love your enemy. Love the fool. Don't be the fool. Do this together with others because it's hard enough to do it on your own, but you can deceive yourself about whether you really love others. Most of those people I told you about that were destroying themselves, they thought they loved others. They thought they loved their child, but they almost destroyed their child. So, seeking that kingdom of God in congregations, linked with congregations, is the way to go. It It isn't the answer. But if you go that way, the answer will find you. Until then, peace on your house and may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Thank you.